to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Dr. Brian Mann. Brian is the Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning at the University of Missouri, where he has worked since 2006. Brian has many powerlifting accolades to his name in raw, single-ply and multi-ply lifting. Brian is also a researcher and an author, having written several research publications dealing with the training of Division I athletics, specifically with football. Brian has written three books, Auto-Regulatory Progressive Resistance Exercise, known as APRE for short, Developing Explosive Athletes, the Use of Velocity-Based Training in Athletes, and a book that he co-authored with Dan Austin, The Complete Guide to Powerlifting. On this episode, Brian and I discussed many topics, including Brian's background and influences, the good and not so good things that Brian sees within the physical preparation profession, Brian's main training principles, auto-regulatory progressive resistance exercise, velocity-based training for raw powerlifters, the biggest mistakes and lessons learned so far in Brian's career, Brian's top resources, Brian's advice to all the listeners, and any upcoming projects and products that Brian has on the horizon. This was a really, really great episode, guys, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, Coach Brian Mann, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on my podcast. Just for the listeners, Brian, who may be, uh, who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine isn't going to be too many listeners, just uh, fill us in on your background. Well, Rob, thanks for, for having me on here. I'm honored with the other guests that you've had on here, like Dan John, uh, Dr. Mike Gidgewittell, uh, James Smith, multiple times. You know, I, I'm honored to be here. Uh, my background is in strength conditioning. I've been involved in, from a student assistant on up since 1999. So it's uh, 17 years now. So I'm like a my strength conditioning career as a senior in high school. Uh, I have been the assistant director of strength conditioning from 2006 to 2000. And I just transitioned out of that role here recently into a, into a different role. Um, so I've been the assistant director here at the University of Missouri for 10 years. Before that, I was at uh, Joe Kim at Arizona State. Uh, I was at the University of Tulsa. And I was with uh, a guy who's with the Chicago Bears now named Rick Perry at Missouri State for quite a time. That's, he's the guy that gave me my start. That's how I got in, involved in the field, just from being at the right place at the right time. So I've been very fortunate. Um, my current role, I am an assistant professor over in the Department of Physical Therapy, and people are like, oh, so you've got a physical therapy background. No, man, they were dumb enough to hire me, so I was smart enough to take the job. Mm, mm. Uh, and I was, I'm was. i also a director of the New Human Performance Institute, the research arm, the fourth performance research arm for the uh, Human Performance Institute at the University of Missouri. So I, we're looking at, uh, you know, I, I stepped away from the, Strength and conditioning traditional role, hands on the you know, hands on coaching role, uh, because I thought that this other role might help me to push the field and be able to put some things out there from the practitioner's perspective. And you know, we're, we're working on some things uh, from the youth level all the way up, and uh, hopefully it'll uh, hopefully it'll take flight. And there'll be some great stuff coming up. We'll have uh, plenty of material in the podcast. But uh, you know that's the the soup to nuts. You know, I guess if you get you want to go all the way back to it, uh, poor white boy from Backwoods, Oklahoma, 
in a trailer, and uh, you know the, the toilet broke. We ended up having to have an outhouse with it. So uh, <laughs> rags to rags to nowhere near Rich's story, I, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that's it. You know, people have uh, it, it always kind of befuddles me that they think that there's I've gone places like I went to China and they were expecting this. I don't know this dignified professor, and I, I looked at the guy from the NSCA, and I'm like, they realize they're getting a backwoods redneck from Oklahoma. They're not getting some uh, some high class guy here, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Set yeah. apart, you'll be okay. So, just uh, following up on that, how exactly did you get the directorship at a, at the physical therapy department? What, why, why is that? And obviously, it's not to do with physical therapy because you're. Yeah. So, how, how was that? How did that come about exactly? Well, so I got the professor position because uh, I knew that I, as a strength and conditioning coach, I was limited in what I could do. So I went on and I got my PhD while being a strength and conditioning coach, which, you know, it is, I don't know how it is at every location, but here we were working 80 hours a week, usually 60 to 80 hours a week, plus I was going to school on top of that. Plus, writing the uh, book, Powerlifting, that uh, co-authored with Dan Austin. Mm. Uh, plus, we had a pro day, you know, and, and uh, doing the dissertation on top of the, all of that. So that was just stupid. But what had ended up happening was I had two interviews, uh, one at Oklahoma State and one at Auburn. And they both went very well. Uh, I had been reaching out and doing stuff with other people around campus. So I had done different, uh, some research studies with, a person who's in the physical therapy, well, two different people that were in the Department of Physical Therapy. And uh, they told their chair about the interview, and their uh, colleagues from the other institution said that it went really, really well. So I ended up an email from Dr. Gibson, who's our, our, our department chair. He's like, I don't know if you realize, but it's really hot in Alabama. If you want to stay here, give me two days. Don't tell them anything. Don't, don't answer them. But give me two days if you want to stay here, and I will have you a job as a professor. So true to his word, he did it. And that's how I came over here to uh, to this role. And my role as the professor is, uh, Dr. Gibson's words, and not my own, was that in the field of physical therapy, everybody says they strengthen. But we really do a poor job of strengthening. And the stuff that I had done with the APRE is uh, why he wanted me to become in, in this role, to help the students who come out of here have an idea of what strengthening really is. Yeah. You know, we, we went, I didn't really understand my role until I went to the uh, the AP, the American Physical Therapy Association combined sections meeting. And while I was sitting in the uh, meeting, it was, I bit my tongue and I bit it so hard because I was getting pissed off by the things that some of the people were saying. Uh, in one lecture in particular, and we had students that were sitting next to me and I just took their notes and I grew I just drew big X's across it that, you know, F no, I will tell you after this, this is bullshit. But basically they were talking, presenting this research about how they did glute bridges and they were looking for uh, improvement in function. And they said that they improved the strength by over 400% that in the glute bridging and they saw no uh, transfer to, uh, uh, to improvement in running form, so it doesn't work. Mm. What they had done was they started out, and the kid could do five glute bridges, and they went up to like 20 or 25. Well, we all know good and damn well that's endurance. That's not strength. And I'm like, okay, now I understand what my role is here on this staff, and this, in this faculty position. Uh, and then my role with the uh, Human Performance Institute was uh, basically 
country it hit big, and some other papers it hit fairly large. They didn't want me to go anywhere. They wanted to uh, kind of lock me up and wrap me down and make sure that I was able to do exactly what I wanted. And um, they gave me this position. So uh, I've just got to say that I've been really fortunate that the people that I've known uh, and from the things that I've done, it's allowing me to do exactly what I want. Uh, you know, I keep saying I've got the best job in America, and I would challenge anybody who says uh, that, that their job is better. You know, I get, to co- I get to coach a little bit here and there. I'm working with the powerlifting team to still try and get my, uh, my coaching fix. I get to research exactly what I want. I don't have to search for funding uh, because of the, that I took a non-tenure track position. And I get to teach, and I teach pretty much what I want. The class that's most out of my wheelhouse is the one I just left, and that's human anatomy. So, you know, that's, I, I, everything's in my wheelhouse. I've got a fantastic job. Yeah, it's, uh, this year, actually, I, I started teaching at a, a personal training college, and, uh, like, I absolutely love the job, too, because you just get to teach about what you love all day long to the students, so I absolutely, I can, I can completely relate to you. But uh, a long-term ambition of mine is to, I'd love to eventually get a PhD and become a professor at a, at a university and do something similar to yourself. But just just, just before I move on, Brian, uh, I, I never knew your background was, was from a, a trader background. I knew it was from Oklahoma, so it kind of makes sense in my head now because I, I've heard you on previous podcasts uh, speak about, you know, that you love the grind and you're a 60 to 80 to 100 hours a week guy. So maybe can you, can you touch on, like... Like, did that upbringing instill a, a great work work ethic in you, you know, that, that really kind of drove you from, I suppose, a trader to be, you know, Dr. Brian Mann with a PhD? It did. Uh, you know, it, it really did. Uh, here, I'll, I'll go into something I haven't got into a podcast before is that uh, my childhood was essentially a bad lifetime. You know, we've got this lifetime channel over here. I don't know if they've got it over there. And it's like all the touchy-feely type stuff. Uh, I grew up in a house with alcohol abuse. Uh, I witnessed things that a child should never have to witness, and uh, I know what it's like to not eat for two weeks. Wow. And I swear to God that I would never do that again. And if anybody who's seen me, my chubbiness will attest to the fact that I've never, never done that again. Uh, if I go hungry, I'm binging as soon as I can. <laughs> but uh, you know, we eventually left, and we went to. Uh, from Oklahoma, we went to where my grandparents were, and uh, essentially I got raised by my grandparents a significant part, uh, part of my childhood, because my mom was going back to school. She didn't have an education. So she went back to school and got a nursing degree. So wow. I was essentially raised by people who grew up in the Great Depression. Wow. Uh, you know, they instilled that sense of work ethic. If somebody thinks enough of you to give you a job, then you think you do, you bust your ass to make sure that you give them what they need. And, uh, you know, through that and through the things that I went through in my childhood, what I determined to myself, I remember it being nine years old or ten years old, that we were in a class and they were talking about the effects of uh, child abuse on later, later stuff. So if you saw something, say something, it was a campaign. And I was listening to the statistics of what they said about people who went through my stuff, and I kept my mouth shut. I'm like, fuck this. I'm not going to be a statistic. Yeah. I'm bust my ass, and I am not going to be one of those people. Yeah. Uh, so you know those, those things they're they're what drove me. Uh, it, it's my greatest asset and probably my greatest curse. I, I work myself to the bone. Uh, you know I I joke around that getting 
getting a PhD nearly killed me this semester that I did it. And it's really not too far off. I had serious health complications that semester afterward. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's that's what drove me. That's what allows me to, to do what I do. I know if I could get through that, whatever challenge I'm up against now is nothing. You know, uh, just just for move on, I want to thank you so much for for sharing that with us. And you know, it's uh, I don't know if you know this, maybe you do from from listening to my my other podcasts. And I suppose people close to me know that I'm a, I'm a very very sort of holistic uh, type of guy, if you want to use that word, or sort of well rounded guy in terms of what I read, and my education, and uh, definitely early early childhood development. Uh, or early childhood development is, is definitely an area I've, I've read a lot into and I definitely know it has a huge impact on on uh, you know our health our wellness and our happiness later in life so you know it, it's it, it's very inspiring to hear you say that you know in the class you were like fuck that I'm not going to be statistic and you know you kind of took onus of your own destiny so uh, it's a big inspiration so I just want to commend you on that and obviously your mother too for going back and getting her nursing degree that's that's an inspiration yeah. as well uh, definitely definitely watching her I was the opposite. School came easy for me. Yeah. Um, I had to work her ass off to get anything done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I every time I go to America, I always kind of wow my American friends with my knowledge of American history. I, I don't know why, but I'm fascinated with American history. So, like, I can name, like, all the U.S. presidents and, I and like, know loads of stuff about the wars, the Civil War and the War of Independence. And, I, I you know, I, uh, like, I would be a big... Uh, a big fan of FDR and the New Deal and the Great Depression, so I'm well aware of what happened that time in American history. So obviously, you're, you know, you were raised by your grandparents. You said around that Great Depression, so you can see how that instilled a, a savage work ethic in yourself. So uh, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? I can uh, uh, associate or definitely know where you're coming from. So uh, the next question, and to be honest, you've actually kind of already answered this, but just just maybe to get uh, s- some other answers as well, I always love asking people this question. So, um, and as I said, you've already kind of given some of the answers, but in terms of your biggest influences, Brian, uh, who have been the biggest influence on you? Not only as a person, because obviously you know you've mentioned your grandparents and your mother, but also as a as a profession as a pro- as a professional um, professor and in your more coaching and academic realm. So. The question is, who's been your biggest influence on you both in your personal life, if there's anyone else to mention, and also in your professional life? You know, there is somebody else to mention in the, uh, the personal life. Uh, I got into powerlifting whenever I was 16, and uh, there was a guy named Jim Garee. Mm. And we, well, I went to a powerlifting meeting, I went to the state powerlifting, the high school state powerlifting championship. I didn't even know what a deadlift was, but I won it. And I didn't have a squat suit, I didn't have a bench shirt, I didn't know anything about those things. <laughs> and, uh, six weeks later, there's another meet that was an hour, hour and a half away, so I went ahead and did that. Well, it turns out that the high school national championships, which I knew of, they were that following week, and I broke like a, a national record in the squat for the high school in my, my uh, weight class, and they were like, why are you here? Why are you not at high school nationals? And I looked at them and I said, sir, I... I can afford to come here. You know, it, it's an eight-hour drive plus hotel and food and everything. I, I can't go down to uh, to Dallas, and, and I just financially can't do it. So the guy pulled out his checkbook and wrote me a check for a few hundred dollars that would make me be able to go down there. Wow. He also uh, kind of served as a uh, bit of a father figure for me too. I, I'd go up to Kansas City, train with uh, Jim Dorey. Uh, and he taught me, you know, the basics about powerlifting. He taught me, you know, he worked with me on technique. And, you know, there's probably three or four times a year I would go there from age about 
16 to 18, 19 years old. Uh, you know, I owe a lot to him because powerlifting was a anchor that I, I put my life to. Uh, it's what kept me focused. It's what kept me uh, doing the, the right thing. Uh, on a professional level, of course, there's Rick Perry. I, I owe that guy everything. He gave me a shot and uh, my first shot. And I, I'll be honest, I screwed up so many times as a student undergrad that I don't know how to get fired because of the stupid stuff that I did. But, uh, you know, he laid it all out on He encouraged me. He had all these books in his office. Uh, these translated Soviet texts by you know, Sharnaga had translated. So, you know, it's kind of rough, but still, you know, great information. I read all those. The, you know, that's yours. The, uh, the original Papa, the theory of the methodology of periodization. Kurz, uh, you know, tons of guys. I read all of that. Uh, and he greatly encouraged me, and he kept, you know, pushing me to do that. Um, and Joe Kennedy, Arizona State, I learned a tremendous amount from him. Uh, whenever I went out there and I interned for him. Uh, then Pat Ivey hired me here at the University of Missouri. I learned tremendous amounts about staff management and things. And honestly, it's because of Coach Ivey that I've been able to be as successful as I have over in the academic environment. Uh, I learned about dealing with administration, dealing with other professionals, dealing with you know, the, just the, the uh, administrative side of things. And Coach Ivey was a genius with that. Uh, also, Luke Simmons, uh, you know, I, I was into powerlifting. He was a huge influence on me. I used to go out there and train several times a year. Love him or hate him, Louie will at least make you think. Uh, golly, you know, I could go on and on and on. Thomas Linsky, that and Buddy Morris are two tremendous influences of mine. Yeah. Went out and visited them whenever they were the Cleveland Browns. I guess that was back in like 2001 or something. Like it actually we were drinking a bar. Uh, and uh, we've stayed in contact ever since. And uh, holy cow, they've been huge influences. They've, they've greatly guided my uh, my career. Matter of fact, if you talk to Buddy, he's going to bring up the, uh, the, the, what was the name of it? The, there was some bar that we were at in Salt Lake City for the CSCCA. Skybar, the Skybar incident, what it's known as, where they just start talking about training, and I brought six sheets of paper, had, had them in my back pocket and a pen, and I whipped them out, I set them on the table, started taking notes, and uh, he, every time I'm around somebody, he's like, hey, you got to know about this fucking guy, this is what he did. Uh, I've got more F-bombs in the podcast than I think I have, and all the rest of them I've ever given combined, so I apologize. Oh, listen, you can fuck away all you want on this show. <laughs> this this, this, this is an Irish podcast, Brian, so there's no holding back. Hey, you know, I got some Irish roots, so uh, that, that works. Yeah, absolutely uh, brilliant, yeah. yeah. The, uh, but, you know, we could go on and on. I mean, I could do talk for hours just about who's influenced me from that. And then whenever you want to talk about the academic side, oh, man. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with a guy named Steve Sayers, who's, uh, if you done any equations with vertical jumps, you've probably seen the Sears equation. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to work with him, somebody named Mary Beth Brown, who is the world's first PT, PhD. A guy named Jerry Mayhew has been a tremendous influence with me that uh, if you've seen most of the stuff I've worked on, he's been a co-author. He's two hours north of here at Truman State University. Uh, absolutely brilliant, absolutely open. Uh, another person named John Tiefel. If I if it were not for John Tiefel, I would not have gotten my PhD. Um, this guy greatly encouraged me. Uh, I, he was a professor on campus. I called him up 
sat down to talk with him since he was teaching the sports performance and conditioning class. We started talking. He had me do a guest lecture one year. Then the next year he had me co-teach, and then he had me start teaching on my own. He is the one that encouraged me to get my PhD. He's like, the way that you do things and the way that you think, you you could do some great things for your field if you do this. Uh, just a, always a source of encouragement. And uh, right now this guy, I tell you what, Robbie, for fatty liver disease and stuff like that, this guy in the American College of Sports Medicine is getting bigger than the Beatles. Wow. Uh, but he's going to be going to be a, a academic phenom to watch out for in the coming years. Uh, now there's, I could go on and on even great, greater, you know, there's Bill Bresch at uh, AT Still, I work a lot with him, uh, guy named Brick Johnstone here is over in health psychology, he's the guy that helped me crack what was going on with that effective academic stress on the injury paper. You know, I, I'm nothing except for the people that I've been working with, uh, they're who have shaped me, they're who have allowed me to do what I do. So I'm definitely very thankful and grateful. I know I've got people, and some people are probably going to be pissed off. Uh, you know, Dave Pinkett, i got to thank him for being able to give me a voice. If it wasn't for him, uh, nothing that I do would ever get out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's like anything, when you start naming names, you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to leave someone out. So that's absolutely yeah. brilliant. So. I'm going to stop now because I'm, I'm probably going to piss somebody off if I keep on going. Well, the, the, the reason why I always like asking that question is because it gives me more people to look up and, and look into, you know, so you're saying this guy influenced me, this guy, and then I, then I usually what I do is I go back and I, I look up these people and I go, whoa, did, like, then I get in touch with them, and it's kind of like when you read research and you look into the research of the research and you just keep digging deeper and deeper, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Brian, another question that I always ask all the guests, and then we'll get into the specific questions surrounding your expertise, but the last one would be... Uh, what are the the best things and the worst things that you see in the uh, in the uh, physical preparation profession? And just with the worst things, what would you do as a solution to improve that? So, basically, what's the best and the worst things you see within our, within our profession? And with regards to the worst thing that you see, have you got any solutions for it? Best things and worst things. Well, the, one of the best things is that I, I see right now is that. Uh, the boom of technology is bringing to light things that we never knew, mm. right? that we wouldn't have any concept about. Uh, the internal loading stuff that we get from the heart rate, the external loading stuff that we get from uh, things like the catapult with the GPS and IMA, which I'm a big fan of because you can't really get change of direction speeds and high-speed accelerations and decelerations from GPS. My, uh, I guess you would call my stepfather-in-law, was greatly involved with for the consumer model. He's a, uh, what I would call a no-shit rocket scientist. Uh, he worked on the, you know, you, you like your history, I don't know if you like engineering history, but the Star Wars projects, aerospace engineering, he was involved in that. Um, you know, he was even telling me about how it's accurate within something like three to nine feet, depending on if you're using what satellite system you're using, because of how many satellites that are available. Wow. So, you know, the high-speed XL and D-cell, you've got to have the accelerometer on there for that, according to him. You know, but if people want questions on that, I, I defer to him or I defer to somebody like Ben Peterson or, or, or those guys. They're far smarter in that stuff than I am. Uh, so that has been a great thing. But now it's uh, some of the technology has also become a, uh, a bird of sorts, too. You know, some people think that you can't do anything without the tech telling you one way or another. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, I wouldn't say that's what's going wrong, but 
think that it is a pendulum swing, right? And I put out this article called The Pendulum Versus the Ladder in Elite FPS and talking about the trends and how there's good aspects of each of the trends and, and bad things that go on at two. People are always from one side all the way to the other. They, you go from, uh, we follow uh, the trends. We had uh, the one set to failure. We had uh, multiple sets. And then we had all lifting. And then we had all power lifting. And then we have all functional. We have all dinosaur. And then uh, we had power factor training. And we have all, the, uh, there's all these great aspects. And each of these things are valid. And they've got something to them. But what we need to do is gather the information and gain perspective to see when we should use them. Uh, and I think what can be done about it is, honestly, I think education. Right? Everybody's getting sold on the glitz and the glam of these things. You know, I had an offensive line coach that I worked with at, uh, at Missouri State. He used to say, people buy the sizzle, they don't buy the stick. So everybody gets drawn in, they go all in on the product, on technology. And they think that it does everything, and it doesn't. You know, I remember whenever we first, whenever heart rate monitoring was just getting uh, big on the team systems with the polar team one, and our coaches were jumping all in on dog cussing some people because their heart rates were low. Well, it wasn't that they weren't working hard. It's that they were way more fit than these other people. And the fat asses over there, you're applauding for working hard. Well, why don't we applaud the kids that are fit? And then, you know, the other techs came in. So I think what we do is, uh, I think what's wrong is that we jump into the tech rather than understanding what its place is. Um, force plates are becoming more affordable now, so I think that's going to be the next big boom. Uh, and I think that there's some definite aspects and beneficial things that we could look at. It's going to help us to look at transfer. You know, I think one of the other things that we've looked at too much over the past several years is uh, only outcomes of training and not the transfer to the yeah, big time, big time. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? I, I'm definitely a victim of it. I come from a powerlifting background. What do I want to do? I wanted to get strong. Yeah. Well, the things that I noticed, and, uh, trying to work with a couple of different other people who were far smarter than me to figure out how to write this up, is that I noticed that whenever our big dudes got over double bodyweight squat and our skill guys, the skinnier they got, the higher portion they had, but nobody was really over about a 2.4, 2.5. Most of them were two and a quarter. On bodyweight uh so if they went two and a quarter over the bottom squat, there was no more transfer to the sport. Mm. Uh, so I think that we need to make sure that we step back and we analyze what is causing transfer. And I think force plates will help us do that with things like uh, you know, Dr. Half and Dr. Stone. They've got that isometric dipole that's become fairly popular. Well, what does that do? It gives you RFD, 50 millisecond time bands. It gives you peak RFD. Uh, it also gives peak power, peak force, all that stuff has time to it. With the force plates, you can also get a reactive strength index off of a drop in, uh, drop, uh, drop vertical jump or depth jump, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that reactive strength index, that tells you how explosive somebody is. A vertical jump, somebody can cheat that whenever we aren't using force plates. What do I mean cheat? They can take a longer dip so that they get more time spent acceleration. Yeah. So that you know, the height of, speed of, uh, the height of uh, vertical jump depends upon the speed of your map on paper. So they're knowing how to cheat the system. They know how to get the best score possible. So that would take that out of with the force plates. You know, it would show us that this guy's got a 37-inch vertical jump, but he is deriving all the from momentum and not power. Uh, and we could take a regular counter movement jump and get the RSI modified. That you know, big a lot of stuff that uh, Suckmel has put out. 
going well. There's a lot of things going right. But I think what's going wrong is that we are buying the sizzle and not the steak. We need to sit there. We need to look and see what kind of cow did this come from. You know, we need to step back and look and see what the accuracy. What is this actually telling us? Uh, are we believing the salespeople or are we looking at the research that's out there? Are we looking to see what this is actually going to do? Or are we look, just listening to a sales pitch and thinking that this one thing is going to solve all the problems? You know, Catapult is a, a fantastic system, but it is not going to solve all of our problems. Okay? It is not going to tell us what the quality of movements are of that person. It simply tells us what they want. We have to have other things if we want to look at the internal world and see what the ratio between external and internal loading are. You know, we've got to know what everything does. Uh, and that's that's where I think that uh, we've gone wrong. How do we fix it? You know, uh, with the same as with most problems in the world, with education, education, education. Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting you bring up that point on the vertical jump because that, that's a, a, the exact area that I've spoken about over the last two years and the exact example you gave in terms of, you know, so I always give the example of if you have an athlete whose vertical jump was 25 inches and then you brought it to, let's say, 30 inches and you're thinking, whoa, I, I, I added five inches to his vertical jump, but what if the athlete was taking a much longer time to display the extra five inches he added? So because you didn't have a force plate to talk to talk about time to impulse and time to take off, and then I start I started seeing papers dealing with time to take off, and I was like, right, here's finally someone coming up with a with a solution for this. So yeah, it's definitely an area that fascinated me the whole force velocity curve when it came to things like vertical jump and uh, you know even things like the you know uh, I even had questions around reactive strength index because I kept seeing like you know a fast ground contact time is anything less than point two hundred fifty milliseconds and. But like there was never any reference to like body weight relative to ground contact or the height of the box, and so there were still like lots of questions left around that area. And I've discussed this with other people, and you know I, I've heard some ideas, but it's a it's a very fascinating area, all right? Yeah, you know, and uh, talking about the box height and the body weight, I just recently saw a paper where I don't remember who the lead author was, but Greg Hopp was the anchor, yeah. and uh, they talked about looking at the RSI across different. Uh, 30, I think it was like 30, 50, and 70 centimeters. Centimeters, yeah. And uh, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I just, I don't remember the exact height, and I don't remember how body weight played into it, but they definitely, they did look at that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's that's one paper that's starting to look at it. You know, the, the stuff that they're doing, I need a talent down there. I think they're putting out some amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, a, 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 a guy I know, I've only really known through strengthcoach.com and Facebook, Daniel Martinez, he's doing his master's. Right. Yeah, he's doing. Yeah, yeah, he's doing his masters down there, and he said that he said it was just brilliant. Ida Ida Cohen was fantastic, but uh, on on the reactive strength index, I, I I had a podcast interview one time with a with a gentleman called Rob Panriello, and Rob said actually what 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 some researchers do is that they they want to see this ground contact time at, at two hundred fifty milliseconds or less, and he just said if you're a heavier guy, your box height would end up being. Uh, lower and if you're kind of a lighter guy your box height just ends up being higher and then that sets your baseline for your RSI to retest again so that was oh. one that was one way you could do it that's oh, very interesting an excellent point too yeah yeah so uh, next question I have for you Brian is um, in terms of I know you said you're not coaching as much as you, you were previously but if I was supposed to question to you you know what, what are the principles that drive your training philosophy? What would your answer be to that? So essentially, what are your big rocks when it comes to uh, your training principles? That's 
changed significantly over time. Uh, used to, I used to just look at, uh, you know, I would tell you that stuff like looking for the squat, looking for the body composition, looking for improvement in speed. Uh, my big block stuff now is still going to be squat, but I'm looking at transfer. Uh, I'm looking at the stuff that's going to transfer over to the sport. Uh, I don't want to get strong just for the sake of getting strong. Yeah. Does strength have a protective mechanism? Are there protective strength factors? Yeah, there are. But also, if somebody's so strong that muscle can tear, and tear at the tendon, tear off the bulge, I've done it. We've had a couple of athletes that have done it. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you want to, and we've had athletes that had some freaky injuries uh, because of, we, that was supposedly with how much force they were putting through. We had a, a, a Liz Flex brain on an offensive lineman to supposedly because of how much force they were putting into the ground. Uh, you know, I don't want to just get strong for the sake of getting strong. I look and see how it transfers over. So I started looking at um, my view is going in a multi-level approach, right? So that we start out, and we know from a lot of the research, all the cross-sectional research showing the improvements of strength and how it improves power. Right? But then we look at longitudinal studies. And let's look at longitudinal studies in athletes, which there's a paucity of that information. And the one study that I always talk about and I come back to because I know it's the best is a study by Jacobson, where they looked at the, like, a, it was a longitudinal profile of the college football player. And they saw that their strength improved by some ungodly amount. But after the first year, there was no improvement in vertical jump and there was no improvement in power, uh, in speed. And running speed, although the squat strength kept going up exponentially. Uh, and I would wager to say that if we look at their data, that's probably about whenever they got to that double body weight squat was in that first year. Yeah. And uh, so why then are we putting in so much effort into strength? Um, I think that the second level then needs to be looking at some things with uh, velocity. Of course, you get Brian Mann on something, he's going to talk about velocity. So, yeah, here, here we go. Uh, I think that that, that not be, not so much for anything else, but that it teaches the intent for the rate of force development. Is it arbitrary? Is it rudimentary? Not arbitrary, but is it rudimentary? Yes. It is rudimentary in how it develops RFD. You are simply trying to move the barbell faster. You get that feedback. You're going to move the bar faster. That study with Randall et al. shows you that, that Nick Gill was on, that where they did the six weeks of training, everybody did the same set, same rep, same exercises. One yeah. group got the feedback of velocity, the other group did not. What happened? Greater sport-specific improvement. That's showing me that there's RFD involved. Uh, we got a paper that we're working on right now that shows the effect of VBT uh, versus traditional periodization. And uh, I, 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 that's not the appropriate term, I'm sorry, versus traditional training, where everybody just kept doing the same program every year, essentially, as was done in the Oklahoma State study, and another one done at Texas A&M with Klaus and Clark, I believe, but I could be off on those others. Uh, we saw huge improvements that continue to exist, uh, improve up until their senior year in speed and power because we implemented it in velocity. I've got a theory on how we could make it go up more and either to increase the velocity or the volume of velocity on the different movements. So moving from something like a clean to a snatch, moving from a regular squat to heavy band resistance so we're hitting up at that 1.1, 1.2 meters per second. Beyond that, whenever we get past that, I think, and how many athletes actually achieve this point, let's be honest, not that many. 
But I think that's where we need to start looking at a uh, Bonnetchuk-esque model, where everything that we look at has got to deal with the transfer. They're already strong. They're already fast. They're already more powerful. Now we need to see how can we create those marginal gains that they have not seen in a while. You know, some people be like, marginal gains. You know, I don't want marginal gains. I want big gains. Well, you know what? I tell you, whenever you get somebody who's highly trained, if you have a big game there, you're using drugs. So let's go ahead and let's look for whatever marginal gains we get, because that could be the difference between a win and a loss. So let's look at some of the things that are about the transfer, that are about those uh, special exercises. Now, looking at some of the stuff from the S's, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole uh, with some of the studies that I've been working on. I'm looking at the impact of special exercises on sporting results with different populations. Uh, that might be a way to go, but I still think I'm not ever going to get away from strength. You need to be strong. I, some people think that with the velocity-based training stuff that I've spoken for years on, guy, you know, I, I just did a presentation uh, a week and a half ago, and this is the first time I ever talked to it. I showed my, one of my workouts, and on that workout there were four exercises for the entire week that utilized velocity. And I said, guys, I'm the BBT guy, and I've got four exercises on it. This is the cherry on top, man. This is in everything. So, you know, and I think that we've got to look at proving that transfer. How do we do it? Honestly, I don't know the best answer. But I know that what we have been doing isn't going to keep it going for a longitudinal uh, program. Yeah. It works for a year, for two years, in the college level. It works for longer than that at the high school with the more untrained athletes. Uh, in college, actually, if you get athletes that um, didn't train before, usually you'll see them improve for three years, and then they'll, they'll tap out. And who am I talking about there? Women's soccer. I had that sport for, golly, I, here I had it for 11 years, and I had it for several years at different schools. You know, all you had to get them strong until their senior year, and then you had to look at doing other things. Uh, so it, it depends on the sport. It depends on the previous training, but that's uh, – yeah, I took a long time to basically say that I'm going to look at transfer and I'm going to look at a long-term development model to get there. Is that going to vary based on the person? Yeah, it's going to vary based on the person because everybody comes in a different point. But uh, I think that there is a uh, probably an 80% commonality, and then I think that, that 10 to 20% is where it's going to vary. Yeah, you brought up some interesting points there. Just uh, First thing I just wrote down there was with that Nick Gill study, <clears throat> you were saying that the group that got feedback they had better uh, transfer in the in terms of their sports performance. Do, do you know how how were they gauging that their sports specific performance increased in that study? Yeah, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Whenever I said that, now that I hear you say it, it's like, well, so they improved in speed, they improved in power, they improved in change direction ability. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a, a thirty meter sprint, a uh, a vertical jump, a standing long jump, and I think I think there was an agility test. So I have not looked yeah. at this study in a while. So it, 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 I just it wasn't the sport specific test. It, it, they basically improved their physical capacities in terms of. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I use a, I use an incorrect terminology whenever I was going over that. No, yeah, I just, no, I was just I was just making sure that that was all. And uh, the other yeah. the other interesting point you bring up there is around, uh, you know, so obviously, I think most people listening to this and me and you both know that this when you have a beginner. Be beginners are always going to get more uh, transfer from general training uh, methods and means than obviously when they become more of an intermediate and then advanced athlete so uh, I think an important point to bring up is that that when you do have a beginner 
you just do need to keep it simple and basic you know really just get them strong you know with the beginner i think we can be as guilty on the other side of this whole argument of getting too fancy too early on with with some athletes so you know kind of just i always kind of say like beginners just need vanilla like so don't get too far ahead but then at the other end you're completely right too that there does become a point of diminished returns and this brings me to the point now of like franz bosch and a lot of his stuff that I think what I have seen, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, what I see is that you get like strength coaches or strength and conditioning coaches or, or physical preparation coaches or athletic development coaches, whatever term you want to use, and they all are a little bit skewed in how they all look at training. Some guys are a little more biomechanical, some guys are a little more physiological, and some guys are a little more motor control like Franz, and it's kind of getting all of those pieces together and bring them all together, you know, so you get your guys who are all physiological, it's all about getting them strong as hell, and it's all about energy systems, a lactic, lactic, rope. Then you get your biomechanical guys. It's all about you know being on one leg and you know all this type of stuff. And then you get your uh, your Franz Bosch's guys. It's like it's all about brain and motor control. And it, it really has to. It's really going to come to bringing all those things together. So, what would your thoughts be on that, Brian? You know, I think that they're all right, uh, and that's that's the thing about it. And that's you know if there was just one way to do it, everybody that's it yeah exactly yeah whereas we need to kind of take all those perspectives together and, and mold it into one holistic program right so do you need to have your energy systems on point yes do you biomechanically need to be sound with your technique yes do you need to have the proper motor control yes when do the different things matter well, i'm going to say that the motor control probably matters more later on you're going to get a huge bang for your buck if they are weak and fast you get them fit and strong you're going to see huge improvements. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But then you're going to see huge improvements by their, through their technique. Mm. And then after you knock out those two things, uh, you know, for me, it's always been about a college career. Most of the people are done. What do you do at that point? If they're still around, well, that's whenever you try to fine-tune it, and that's where that motor control, I think, you know, that the Franz Bosch stuff really, really comes in. Yeah, uh, yeah. You try and make somebody who's weaker than a kitten only worry about motor control, I think you're missing the, the results. You know, uh, one of the things that you talking reminded me of is that uh, this year, I, in the fall, I was in strength conditioning, and I had the throwing. And we also had our first child in August, August 28th, so right there at the beginning of the semester. So I'm out for three weeks. I come back, and there's this uh, freshman hammer thrower who's from the U.K. who had never lifted before, which blows my mind. Wow. A hammer thrower that ever lifted. Well, the, doing the program that she was doing that was the same one as everybody else, she was getting blown up. She was just getting completely broken down and was not able to recover. Uh, the volumes of things were too high for her, and she was thinking about stopping in the weight room and maybe stopping some other things, too. So I had just gotten back. It's the second week of me being back, and, I, you know, I, I'm, the head coach gives me a heads up. So I sit down and talk to her, and I go, hey, you know what? Give me three weeks. Just give me three weeks. We're going to change something up and then decide on if you want to pull out of the week. And what do I do? You want to talk about vanilla? I went with the yes, it's one by 20. <laughs> she started out, dude, she got pinned for on two reps with 95 pounds on the squat. Wow. I five for a double, she got pinned. By the end of that, with the one by 20, she did, uh, by the end of the semester, she did 160 for 20 reps. So, you very vanilla. Very repetitive. The 
fear got out of the way about the lifting. Uh, the volume was modern, but we kept progressing. And yeah. the, uh, the coach said, I don't know what the hell you've done with her, but she looks like a different person in the ring. Yeah. We didn't do anything special. Nothing at all. We did one set of 20, lots of sets of 20, three times a week. We did the same workout every time, and she got better. Yeah. Now, would I give that same exercise to somebody, or that same workout routine to somebody like Christian Cantwell, you know, he's going in to be a three-time Olympian. Should be a fourth, but, you know, back in 04, he had a, a bad day. Uh, one of the most decorated throwers of all time. Would I give him that training workout? Hell no. He's going to have a very advanced model. But for her, it was completely appropriate. Mm. Was it, would it be appropriate for some other kids on the team? And there's a couple, maybe so. But overall, I tell no, they needed more of the intermediate program. Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. So let, let's move on to uh, uh, auto regulatory um, progressive resistance exercise. So your your APRE um, tra- training system and the book you wrote on that. And as I said offline before we came on, uh, this book is a little bit of a, a hidden gem. So just for the listeners, Brian has uh, authored three. Is three books you've authored so far, Brian? That'd be right. So he has a book called uh, Auto Regulatory Progressive Resistance Exercise, or APRE for short. Then he has his Velocity Based Training book, um, and then he also has the book that he co-authored with Dan Austin on uh, powerlifting, the, the complete book of powerlifting. So, well, I just wanted to, uh, one of the questions I really want to get Brian to talk about here was, you know, how did APRE come about? Maybe for the listeners, just fill us in on the history, the background, and what exactly is uh, APRE. Oh yes, the history of it, baby. I love this. I'm actually going to give a presentation on this in uh, Seattle here in a couple of weeks on the APRE, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, I haven't talked about anything other than velocity in a while, uh, or academic stress and illnesses and injuries. But the, uh, so how I came across this, well, you know, let's start out with the history of it. So, Bobby, let me ask you a question. What is probably the most common prescription for sets and reps for an exercise? 3 by 10 DeLorme. 3 by 10 exactly. It comes from Captain Thomas DeLorme who was a military surgeon. Uh, Captain DeLorme uh, dealt with a lot of femoral fractures. At the time, what they did was they casted them up after, was it like eight weeks, 12 weeks, bone remodeling, took the cast off, smacked them on the ass, and uh, sent them back out there. And they obviously couldn't handle things because they were greatly atrophied. Now, one of the things I learned about Dr. DeLorme from the Todd's, from Dr. Terry and Jan Todd down at the University of Texas in Austin, which if you ever go down there, the Stark Center, that, this is all my buck clip, is the Museum of All Things Strength. But uh, Captain DeLorme happened to uh, have a childhood illness that was a rare one that left him hospitalized for a while, and the only way that he could really make anything of himself and rebuild any muscle was lifting weights, and he became quite an accomplished weightlifter himself. Uh, well, he took his weightlifting background, and he melted down some equipment, and he started doing essentially a leg extension, and he did three sets of 10. He had three plates, so they did one set of 10 with one plate, another set of 10 with two plates, and one set for as many as they could with three three plates. And they did as many as they could there. Why 10? Why not? Kind of like the five by five. Why did we do five sets of five? Because still starts out at seven. Uh, but uh, back to the point. Then along comes Mike, who takes that same protocol, thinks it's fantastic. He adds on a fourth set, so there's two, two working sets instead of one. And he also has an adjustment chart because he's uh, a surgeon that has therapists working underneath him. So he wants to make sure that everybody is given the appropriate protocol. Uh, and he calls this the DAPRI, the Daily Adjustable 
press resistance exercise versus the one who called it the PRE. Other people call it 310 ascending. They call it the old method uh, after him, but he called it the PRP. Uh, after, and I believe that in 1984, there was a paper that came out that he just wanted to look at what happened whenever they did a six rep protocol instead of a 10. And they found that the increases in strength were not congruent with the increases in hypertrophy. In fact, the strength gains were far greater than the hypertrophy gains. Uh, and that kind of befuddled them, but we also know about uh, motor recruitment, Heinemann size principle, and things like that now, so that makes perfect sense that you had to engage the higher threshold motor units. Once those started working, that's what caused the improvements in strength. Well, then Sip and Boroshansky come along, and they uh, they take a, a derivation of that, which was in super training, which is where I got a hold of. And they add on a three-rep protocol, and they drop the D off of it, which might have the DAPRI, they just had the APRE, and they called it the auto-regulatory stress-resistance exercise. Well, I read this in Super Training, and I decided back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that I was going to try this with my women's soccer and field hockey teams. I've been doing all uh, pro style squat uh, protocols and, uh, and some current stuff and, and things like that with them. And I thought, well, what the hell, let's see if this actually works. And I'll be damned, within five weeks, the ladies weren't doing sets of six to eight with their old one RF. And it was just like, holy shnikes, what have I got here? Then we go, uh, I end up coming here and uh, to University of Missouri, and our head coach is a big numbers guy. He wants X number of guys squatting, uh, benching this, X number of guys squatting this. You know, he's got certain standards that he wants. Well, we had a hard time hitting that our first year, so I uh, bring up this idea to Coach Ivy. So in 2004, our guys did the linear periodization program. In 2005, our guys did the APRE program. The results were just magnificent. Uh, we would see, let me let me pull up the numbers here. I should have this fairly close to be able to actually get the numbers. It's page 79, so I'm up quite a bit from here. Uh, we saw just tremendous increases in our squat, our bench press, and our deadlift. Uh, so let me pull the numbers up here so I don't say something wrong to you. Let's get up to the means. Like our uh, squat, we saw a improvement in about uh, of about 10 kilos on the APRE, where we saw a slight decrease overall. We saw a huge increase in the clean versus uh, about the same. You know, we're looking at like a, a one or two kilo increases on clean. We're seeing an eight kilo increase on uh, in the APRE. We're seeing a two kilo, a one kilo decrease in squat. We're seeing a 10 kilo increase in that. On the bench press, where'd that go? We saw a six kilo improvement on the bench press versus a one kilo improvement on the bench press. Now realize this is in a five week time period. So we're seeing tremendously greater gains in this five and six week time period using the APRE than we did uh, the, the traditional linear periodization. Now some people come back and say, well, that's got to be a poor linear periodization uh, scheme if that's uh, if that's the changes that you saw. If you don't saw that, it's like, dude, if in five weeks you see any improvement, you're doing pretty damn good because that's all we've got. We don't have eight, 12, 16 weeks. Uh, and two, there's something that the APRE has that the linear periodization doesn't, and that's autonomy. So that actually, whenever the uh, you have autonomy over your your workout, 
and strength and condition to speed. And for the few guys that were over 500, it was speed and condition to strength, so speed, strength, endurance. So we've got this one test that isn't really a test for what it's intended to be. But now let's look at it cross-sectionally. If a dude benches 500, is he going to do more than a guy that does 300? Yes. So in that terms, it is a strength test. But you, the changes in strength are not going to grow with the changes in 225 and the repetitions. So in that respect, it is not a strength test. So it's not truly a strength test. Uh, it's a strength test in the same way to say that a push-up is a strength test. So uh, that's a mouthful there on the APRE. I went down. I went to talk a lot longer about that than I thought I would. But uh, you know, it's got all to do with the adjustments, and it's got to do with. And there's a lot of finer points to it too. Uh, where did you want to go from here, Robbie? I'm sorry, I just took it and just ran with it. No, that's absolutely perfect. Listen, this is why I bring people on. You can you can ramble away as much as you want. One thing that I do like about AP, uh, the the APRE and, and any type of system that has like a kind of open ended set at the end. I remember back in two thousand and nine <coughs> when One was kind of big at the time. I did an internship at Mike Boyle Strength and Condition, and we did a, a sort of a um, a modified version of Fight Room. We did we did eight six four with the athletes and. One thing that I constantly saw over and over again was that you get the guys who'd be like, I can do this, I can do this, and you go, now it's a four plus set, you're meant to get more than four, and usually they get like three, <laughs> and you're like, right, so do you, you'd be like, so now that weight's too heavy, do you agree? And you're like, yes. But then with the females, it was always the opposite, it was like, right, I want you as many reps as you can with that, and they'd get like 15, and you'd be like, you're meant to do that for four reps, you got 15, you clearly can do more weight. So I always like the feedback athletes got off that open-ended set too, you know, so that was one thing I really liked. Just with the APRE, Brian, have you married that at all with VBT? Have you used any velocity base with uh, with uh, APRE? I have, actually. Uh, funny that you, you, talk, you bring that up. And uh, it's either, I can't remember if it's going to be in the new velocity book or it's in the new APRE book. I, I talk about how I married them up. And I've done it in a couple of different ways. And one is that I used, for the Olympic lifts, we use the minimum threshold velocity. Yeah. That if you stand up with the bar in the rack position, but you're below the minimum threshold velocity, that repetition didn't count. It's the same as if you couldn't stand up with it. Wow. And the, uh, the changes that we saw in the ring doing that with the throwers were phenomenal. Uh, it was about the accumulation of the quality of, rather than the quantity. And something else that I've played around with, too, is that um, using the velocity zone that some people agree with and some people don't, and that's fine. I don't really care. But we would use, we pick a trait, and you had to be over velocity for that repetition to account for that too. So it's just, again, creating a minimum threshold that if they weren't, oh, let's say that we were trying to develop accelerated strength in an offensive or defensive lineman, uh, that every repetition that they did had to be over 0.6. If they got, let's say they're on the APR6, they got 11 that were over uh, 0.6. Their last two were below 0.6. We only went off of 11 repetitions. For these yeah, guys. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's great. Yeah. That's so that's how I've married those two. Uh, there's some other people who sent me some uh, very intricate marriages of the two that, uh, that that seem phenomenal, but I don't feel that I could do what they did justice. So I don't uh, I don't want to talk about it, especially because you know, whenever you get down to it, it's their intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about it anyway. Just uh, like like I said offline beforehand, that you know, and and you were kind of also saying too, you know, you you, 
like not, not to say you're sick of but you, you probably are a little bit tired of talking about vbt so I, I only have one question surrounding vbt and if anyone wants to know more about velocity based training brian's on a a ton of podcasts you know with, with robert pacey and a few other uh, podcasts that i can link to the show notes all around vbt uh, you did one with martin bingers there too on his podcast so there's plenty of resources out there of brian already speaking about vbt but one question I'd, I'd really like to get your thought on uh with raw powerlifting making such a, a big comeback over the last three four five years a lot of the top raw powerlifters and powerlifting coaches have kind of um they've kind of downplayed the importance or the need or even yeah the need i suppose to do speed uh the, the uh, speed based work for powerlifters so like dynamic effort method because their sort of argument is that you know powerlifting is a sport of absolute strength how much transfer does you know the dynamic effort method a la westside have to raw powerlifters versus geared powerlifters so my question is like do you see a role for velocity based training in the training of raw powerlifters I see it two ways. Uh, in the one, I, well, really three. So on the one hand, whenever you're looking at how many, how much weight you can absolutely put up, it doesn't matter. I mean, let's be honest. If you stood up with the barbell and it was moving at .0001 meters per second, well, guess what? You stood up with it. Counts. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So on that regard, that there's no, uh, there's, there's no need for it. There's another need, another aspect where I could see a need, and that's with if you look at the stuff from even the Flanagan and Vladimir Vodovic, how they rework these Gerardo's study about the uh, you know the velocity loss and the stoppage and the, the cutoffs. And I probably you know I, I'm a stupid American who's a backwards redneck, so I probably butchered both of their names. So I apologize. Is that Eamon Flanagan? <clears throat> Is he Irish? Yes. Eamon yes. Flanagan. Yeah, I was thinking Aim- that's. Amen. Okay. That that that's yeah. Uh, to, to to be fair to you, uh, anyone outside of Ireland who sees the name Amen will be like, "What the fuck name is that?" It's it's a hard name to pronounce when you when you see it on paper. But Amen, yeah. Well, I know that Gaelic is a, is pretty you know, tough too because I remember actually uh, since you're from Ireland, this might mean something to you. I actually worked security for two or three days for a group called Westlife. Oh yeah, they're, they're, Westlife are huge in Ireland and England. Massive. They're 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 finished now. They do some comeback gigs. They were massive in Ireland. They were, and uh, on one of the, the nights, uh, they, they were having a U.S. tour, and they happened to be in my city. It was a company that I worked security for. That's one of the ways I put myself through college was being stupid and putting myself in really bad situations. But uh, they were teaching me some stuff in Gaelic after I'd been drinking a bunch of tequila with them. Uh, I don't know what kind of tequila it was, but it was good shit, man. It, it was you, you didn't uh, you didn't have any burn, and you were like, oh god, and you, you saw live sacrilege for it. That's unbelievable. But, uh, so just 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 for the listeners, Brian Man got drunk with West with Westlife. That's absolutely classic. <laughs> Over here, nobody knows who they are, but I was like, dude, this is an Irish guy. I gotta bring this up. It's brilliant. But, uh, they were teaching me. I think it's Pope Mahone and Pope Mahoney. Yeah, Pope Mahone is kiss my ass. Yeah, that one, and they said you gotta be careful because you know you gotta be careful with the way you say and, and, and go uh, Gaelic. Pope, one of them is uh, like, "Hey, how are you?" The other one's "Kiss my ass." So, yeah, yeah. So it's Pope Mahone is "Kiss my ass." Yeah, as far as I know, to be honest, I'm my Irish is disgracefully poor for an Irish person because in in Ireland. Irish is very is is not very widely spoken only in certain parts of it. So I, I live in Dublin, which is East Ireland, whereas the the real Irish speaking parts are in the very west of the country, and it's only in small pockets. You know, it, 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 it it's essentially like if I went to America and there's probably 
only a handful of native Native Americans that could still speak the the language in that kind of way. Right. Yeah. Uh, blame you can blame blame the English. Yeah, the, the fucking English. <laughs> Man, I forgot what we were talking about. I thought I started talking about Westlife. I thought about the tequila, and then I got a little stomachache after that. Uh, where, where, where were we? Uh, we we were. Um, we were talking about uh, the velocity-based training, and do you see it having any sort of uh, carryover to raw powerlifters? So the velocity stop. So that's where I think it might have an impact. Is there with the velocity stoppage? So that would be a cutoff. Saying if I want to uh, be two or three repetitions away from failure, I will stop whenever I achieve this velocity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. no. That's granted. This is using averages. Yeah. So are some people a little slower than that? The powerlifters, I would argue, can go slower than the numbers that were published by uh, by those two, uh, Eamon Flanagan uh, and Milad. And Milad, yeah. Uh, and then the third point that I would bring up is people talk about this, right? They talk about how there is no need for, uh, for dynamic effort. But you know what? I want to point them to Matt Winning. Matt Winning has been doing dynamic effort, and Matt Winning is now dominating in raw powerlifting. So... Is it that there is no place for it? Well, I think they're wrong. I think that uh, what dynamic effort does is it isn't necessarily just about the uh, movement of the velocity of the barbell. It also allows for refinement of, of technique. Your technique is always going to break down under maximal loads. Yeah. So at 60% and below, those sub-maximal loads, you're able to refine your technique. Yeah, also, yeah. also, let's think about this. Have you ever heard of the empirical rule of 60%? Uh, I have, yeah, to a degree that you need to be above 60% to get some sort of, to, to count it as a training stimulus. Well, no, what I was actually talking about was that the empirical rule was 60, and I think it was either, I think it might have been in super training, might have been the first time that I saw it. It was in one of those old books that I read under Rick, and it was saying that for your recovery, your workload should be no more than 60%. Okay. For a heavy day. And, well, using 60% and below on your dynamic effort day. So what does that make it? Recovery. Recovery. Well, it's, so, it's funny you say that because that's what Mike Tashira said, that he believes when people say, oh, but dynamic effort carried over. And he, he says it's, it's not so much the actual dynamic effort or the speed. He, he felt it was technique refinement and recovery that people were getting the benefit from. Like I, I can see the argument for not doing dynamic effort with accommodating resistance for raw lifters because the force curves are completely different from raw lifters to gear lifters. Uh, so I, I could see the argument for that. But something I've been thinking about lately is that me personally, myself, like I'm a very slow, I'm a grinder. Like, like if you saw me do a set of five or eight and you saw my first rep, you'd be like, 
you'd like that's that's his one that's like near his one rep max and then then you'd see me do a second and go oh he's doing another rep and another and then i do my eight reps and go your first and last rep but all the same because i'm just i'm a i like i'm genetically a type one fiber endurance guy that and i just got into lifting you know but like i always feel when i when i get out of the end like when i'm getting out of the hole that i, I just feel if i had more speed and i then like when i read things like zaskadorsi's book and you know you have your uh, for, you know when you talk about intramuscle coordination you have your motor recruitment and then you have the rate of coding and synchronization like surely rate of coding like in his book he's saying that that should help with maximum strength development because it's one of the components of intramuscle coordination so if I was to improve that rate of coding through just even a bit of speed work out of the hole like surely that would help even just recruit my, my fibers a little bit faster or, or getting out of the hole I always feel like I just I just can't get that like recruitment or whatever. It's hard to explain. It feels like I, it feels like I just get a bit unstable in the bottom, and I just can't like I can't kick the gears quick enough. But I feel that if I could, it would help me make more lifts early. So I don't know. But I, I I can see the argument for both ends. I think Tashir is probably right in that majority of the time it's probably recovery and technique most raw lifters are getting from it. It's, it's funny, he I, he actually coached me there for a few months, uh, going into one of my first meets, and uh, I, I loved his program, it's, uh, it's high intensity, high frequency now, so I, you know, you'd, I squatting three times a week, benching four or five times a week, and deadlifting twice, and it, it was good, you know, so, uh, but uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be the world's best, but my bench is terrible, I'm a good, I'm, 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 I'm a good deadlifter, because I've got good uh, mechanics for it, but my squat and my bench wouldn't be my best, particularly my bench, but it's getting there. Now, I can squat, I can bench, the deadlift, man, I'd rather shoot myself. Like yeah, that. yeah. So, Brian, just, just wrapping up, uh, I just want to ask you, uh, in terms of your career so far, what have been the biggest mistakes you've made and what are the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Oh, man, biggest mistakes. Damn. If you, yeah. if you want to put it down to, like, your top one or two or three mistakes and what did you learn from that experience? You know, I think what... Whenever we get down to it, my biggest mistakes all come down to one thing, and it's, well, a couple of things. One of them is, is time management, and that's, uh, I, ineffectively, I, I think that I can do everything, mm. so you know, not, not handing stuff off. Uh, another thing that was a big mistake early in my career, uh, up until probably, God, five or ten years ago, was uh, I... I thought I was the smartest guy that there was, that nobody else could know anything, and if I didn't know it, it wasn't right. Uh, I was very arrogant about that. I was very arrogant about my knowledge and my, my information. Uh, and and uh, that was probably, that's probably the biggest mistake that I've had, because that's held me back and not allowed me to open up to other things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's look at, my background was in powerlifting, so I thought you didn't lift the clips, you know. Uh, but whenever I got through into velocity, I saw that what is an Olympic lift? It's simply a movement for speed strength. And we look at the paper by uh, Rob Newt that just came out in JSCR, and we that paper that came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that looked at the effects of jump training and plyometrics versus weightlifting. We see that there's no difference. Yeah. So what does it tell us? Well, that both camps are right. You can get more explosive by jumping. You can get more explosive by Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. Uh, but I 
changing things is absolutely brilliant. And it pisses a lot of people off whenever he says, I always approach you know, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. And it's more of a mentality than an actual thing, is that if you're the dumbest guy in the room, and you know you're the dumbest guy in the room, you're not afraid to ask a question. And I was afraid to ask questions whenever I was younger because uh, I might look stupid. Yeah. But now, whenever somebody asks for questions, nobody else is raising their hand. I'm going to. I remember I was at Mike Robertson's seminar uh, back in uh, October, November, something like that. I spoke on one day, and then Boo Shexnader talked the next day. People are afraid to ask good questions, but we're in there, and I'm like, I'll ask a question. I'm not, I'm the dumbest guy in the world. You know, it's it's so it's so funny you mentioned Mike Robertson because I was literally about to say what I'm about to say now, and then you just said Mike Robertson, but. Mike, Mike Robson himself I'm, I'm good friends with Mike really good friends with Mike and he came over to Ireland in October 2014 and did a did a two day seminar absolutely brilliant it's actually his physical preparation 101 product and like and like I absolutely like because me, me and Mike now like before I became friends with Mike like my, my program and Mike's program were like I mean scary scary similar I mean even our templates we both did our program templates on Word because we, we both can't use Excel. Like, I mean, like, to the T, like, everything. Like, the way we described our energy systems and, like, our programs, it was scary. So, like, uh, I sent him an email and said, I'm going to your, your seminar. So, when he did the seminar, I mean, I, gri- I grilled him with questions. It got to a point where, like, he'd be like, any questions from anyone? And nobody was saying it. And he'd, go, and he'd just look at me and go, Robbie? And I'd be like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, I forgot the other part of your question. No, that, that 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 was it. That was it. It was just big, big, the biggest mistakes and the lessons learned, and and you kind of you, you nailed both of those. So just Brian, wrapping up another thing, I love actually love asking my guests is what are your biggest resources that you would give to anybody listening? And the resource doesn't only have to be, you know, within the uh, strength and conditioning profession. It could be any sort of resource to do with life. So and anything at all, a book, a podcast, a course. It could be through with self development, spirituality, nutrition, health, whatever. It doesn't it just have to be. Uh, related to um, physical preparation? Excellent question. Uh, so resources, I really like Elite FTS. Of course, I write for them. Uh, so I think that that's a great resource. But you know what? The, I, I think one of the most underutilized resources that we've got is uh, networking, man. And yeah. Reaching out to people right now yeah. is, Big time. Uh, is easy. Like the other day, I, I've never met Derek Hansen before. Really? I never have, but I... Great uh, dude. Yeah, I sent him a, uh, just trying to be funny, I sent him a message based off of one of the tweets that he, he had put out. I'm not going to, yeah, it was, I, I couldn't, in my position, there's no way in hell that being a professional, I could put something out like that and put it out on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I messaged it to him privately. Well, within 10 minutes... We've got each other's cell phone. We've got each other's personal email, and we're looking to meet up in the future. Yeah. Because you know the world is flat now. There, you know, if I want to find out stuff about velocity-based training, I can just Google or email or Facebook message, whatever it's called. Dan Baker, Rob Newton, uh, Eamon Flanagan. Now we've started conversing. A- Eamon, son of a bitch, I'll get it done eventually. Eamon, you got it. You got it. Uh, that you know, the world is flat, and we've got to realize that our network that we can r- rely on for information isn't the people in our building, it's not the people in our city, it is anybody around the world with a computer. Yeah. 
It's, uh, it, it's funny it's funny sorry to cut across you but it's funny you mention that because people always say to me every time about the podcast like how do you get these guys on and I'm just like I ask <laughs> you know I, I ne- it's just networking you just ask and it, like th- this is why I started the whole podcast I mean there obviously was a, 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 a selfishness behind it in terms of, like I could get guys like yourself on and you know it's about educating myself but th- this is why I also put it out for the listeners because it benefits everyone at the end of the day right and the last thing I would recommend uh, it's probably something that people wouldn't expect me to talk about, but it's like a meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a uh, story that's in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits Highly Effective People, which is an amazing book. I recommend everybody read that as well. Great book, yeah. He talks about that he was he liked writing with the typewriter because he could hear the keys, you know, and he just liked the feel of that. He was writing at his beach house, and the wind comes up, and it's just blowing all the pages around. And so he's frantically over there trying to pull down the pages to keep them in order. And then he realizes that the wind keeps blowing, this is happening. Why don't you go over and shut the window? So for me, uh, one of the biggest things that I've got is that there are so many times that it's so frustrating because my mind won't stop. I cannot sleep. I cannot, you know, slow down or relax. I've got so many different things that are going on in my head. And by practicing meditation or, or mindfulness, that that allows, kind of what I refer to it as whenever I talk to people, uh, talk to the athletes, it's like the defrag of the computer. It takes everything up, puts it where it's supposed to be, and it stops it. So then you can go and uh, go a, a new, a go refreshed. And that has made a tremendous amount of difference for me in my, my personal and professional life. And I can always tell a tremendous difference whenever I've gotten away from it for a while. You know, uh, I'll be on edge, I can't relax, I can't. You know, I can't stop, and all of my thoughts are so jumbled that nothing makes sense. So uh, then I go do that, and ten, you know, half an hour later, I'm back to normal. You know, I shut the window. So that's a, that's a major resource that I would put out there. And that that kind of that covers my last question, which was which was going to be if you had any advice as well. So any advice to anyone listening? So your advice probably would be just to do a bit of mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, and don't be afraid to ask questions. And approach everything like you're the dumbest guy in the room. Great stuff, Brian. Finally, uh, can you? Where can the listeners find out more about you? Any contact details, or a website, or Facebook, Twitter, and also maybe just talk about any upcoming projects you have uh, on the horizon. Yeah. So, uh, best way to get in touch with me, you know, my email is m a n n j s and james b s and brian at health.mastery.edu. I try and get back to everybody as soon as I can. Sometimes that I might have projects that I'm working on with uh, different organizations. Uh, There was one I was working with the Department of Defense and the NCAA, and between it and the stuff in athletics and my students, I was getting over 300 emails a day. Wow. Shit got lost. So if I don't get back to you in three days, email me again. Another way to get a hold of me is I might get a couple hundred emails a day, but I'm not that cool, not that popular, so Twitter has been really easy to get a hold of me, and that's at jbryan, B-R-Y-A-N, M-A-N-N, uh, it's the dude wearing a bench shirt. That's uh, that's me. Uh, that's a really easy way to get a hold of me there. And then Facebook, and it's just Brian Man on Facebook. Uh, so those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. I try and be an open book, uh, but then I will say this. You know, and advice. Let's actually back up for the advice. Don't email somebody and ask them how what you should think, or to do your thinking for you. 
This annoys the shit out of me whenever I get somebody who will email me like six or seven times. And what should I think about this? What does this mean? Uh, and it's like, what do you mean? What, what, do you, what do I, how am I going to know what you think this means? You know, you need to figure this out for yourself. Yeah. You know, do your own thinking and then come in. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm open and, and, you know, I say that because this just happened the other day and it annoyed the shit out of me. I've got to do this presentation. What should I say? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I know. I, I, I had people do that to me too. There, there was actually a, a, a lady emailed me one time and she's like, I need a, I need such and such for my master's thesis or project and it has to be in this week. Can you help me out? Basically asking, can I do it for her? And I was just like, like I actually did help her out a lot, but then like I was like, right, that's it. I'm not going to do that again. And then she came back and like something else popped up two weeks later for another project. And I was like, listen, no way am I doing this again. Like, yeah. Like, I'm a busy dude. I'm not doing your work for you. Yeah, yeah. And again, like, uh, I, I don't know if you, <laughs> you've listened to the previous podcast, but, like, one of my, like, underlying themes to life is always, always, always think for yourself. Have some self-reliance and have some courage to think for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, you were just saying, too, that you're having a second edition coming out of the uh, APR ebook. Maybe just, uh, maybe fill the listeners in on that. Yeah, you know, I... Uh, it's a lot of the finer points of things. You know, like, uh, warm-up sets. People be like, well, that's too big of a jump. Well, yeah, I can see that. You know, here's, uh, and I, I go over uh, individual warm-up, uh, like on bench press. Like, whenever I'm doing APRE 3 and going out to, I'm sorry, I'm going to go in pounds, and suppose I can't think that quickly. It's okay. But like, I, uh, my top set's 365. My first work set's 365. So I start out the bar for 20 or 30, then I go 95 for 10. 135 for 10, 185 for 6, 225 for 6, 275 for 3, 315 for uh, a double, and then 365 for my work set. Yeah, yeah. Talk about, you know, how to adjust things for the, uh, the sometimes, you know, you'll go and do multiple work sets because you don't know what the person's one item is. Uh, going in season, doing one work set. Yeah, I, I talked about a lot of different things with that. Uh, the velocity-based training, we're coming out with a third edition. Uh, there's been a, a just explosion of research uh, on stuff with velocity by people like Amen and Maladin and uh, the Sanchez Medina's group there in Seville, Spain, uh, you know, down in Australia. There's just been a, a, a explosion of it, and it's been fantastic, and I've incorporated a lot of that, and it's uh, thankfully supported most of that. Um, I'm working on some stuff with the NSCA for a hands-on coaching certificate. I'm also working on it for a PDE, uh, Program Design Essentials. I'm helping out with that. Uh, plus, I've got numerous presentations this year. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, going through that and then teaching. So. That's absolutely brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. So, uh, just w- one final uh, thing for myself that I just wanted to say. You know the book you always mentioned, Roman's book? Is that the training of the weightlifter where you got all those speeds? Those of those bar velocities. I'm pretty sure I can go look real quick if you want. Uh, you all say Roman's book. Yeah, the other book I can ne- like uh, that's impossible to get is that one by uh, uh, Ijan and Baroga, Thomas Ijan and Baroga. I got a Baroga with me. Finished all four. That's so that 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 book is impossible. Like it's on Amazon, but like there people want like a thousand pound for it. I'm like I'm not paying that much for a book. I don't know how much a thousand pounds are, but I paid four hundred dollars for it. Wow! If you want, if you come across it, let me know. Anyway, but uh, 
No, Brian, listen, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, just stay online for just one second when I wrap up the podcast. So, so, guys, what an absolutely brilliant podcast with Coach and Dr. Brian Mann. Absolutely brilliant information, as always. So, for everyone listening, keep supporting the podcast by downloading and sharing it. And uh, for everyone that's listening right now, take care, guys. I will talk to you soon and stay strong. <laughs>